listening to a podcast from The National. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman arrived in the United States on an official visit this week. He met with President Donald Trump on Tuesday and will convene with senior cabinet members of the administration as well as Congress leaders in Washington. Later in the week, he'll head to Boston, New York, and the West Coast, where he'll meet with leaders of tech and film industries. The Saudi Crown Prince is expected to end his two-and-a-half-week-long trip in Houston, Texas. In one of the longest senior Saudi official trips to the U.S., what will the young prince look to achieve as he pursues his reformist agenda at home and abroad? And how will this trip look to change perceptions of Saudi Arabia? We'll look to answer these questions on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. This week, we continue our analysis of Saudi Prince's historic visit to the U.S. as he looks to project his vision of the kingdom. We spoke to Joyce Karam, our Washington correspondent, who was present during the Saudi embassy briefings and has been talking to insiders in the capital on what the trip means for bilateral relations. This was the most significant takeaway from U.S. President Donald Trump's meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, Nasser, uh, the most significant takeaway, I think, from the uh, three-hour meeting between Trump and the Saudi Crown Prince is the wide-ranging aspect of the relationship. Uh, I mean, they talked economy, uh, they've talked investment, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Iran, Russia, U.S. jobs, uh, domestic change in Saudi Arabia, nuclear energy. Uh, I mean, that comes to show uh, how uh, how deep, how foundational uh, the, the relationship uh, is today. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's also showing if we look at the visit uh, itself, uh, this is a 20 day uh, visit for uh, the Saudi crown prince from coast to coast. He's starting in Washington, uh, going to Boston, New York, uh, Seattle, uh, San Francisco, uh, L.A. and Houston. That's a very... Uh, long trip when you talk about foreign visits and it just comes to show uh, evidently the Saudi interest in in, uh, fostering this uh, relationship with the United States on all levels, not just political, but uh, evidently uh, cultural, uh, educational and uh, economical uh, between the two sides. Although strong, the two countries don't agree on everything. Is Saudi's growing relationship with Russia an issue for the U.S.? And are they likely to discuss that? So when we talk about Russia and the U.S., it depends who we are talking to in the U.S. administration about this subject. Uh, Is it the White House? Is it the State Department? Is it Trump uh, himself? Uh, ahead of the meeting, uh, we we heard from U.S. officials uh, about the need to push back against Russia, about a growing concern uh, regarding Russia's activities in in Syria, in uh, in Europe, in in the U.K. in and in Ukraine. Uh, so on that level, there is definitely a growing concern, and the U.S. would like. Uh, to see a stronger pushback uh, from the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia included, uh, in uh, dealing with Russia. Now, on the other hand, uh, what we saw happen also is U.S. President Donald Trump calling Vladimir Putin and congratulating him 
despite his uh, advisors urging otherwise. Uh, so it, it, if we're going to say, you know, the U.S. administration, yes, they'd rather not, uh, not see, uh, you know, the Gulf countries cozying up too much to Russia. But if we want to talk about the U.S. president himself, there might be different preferences there. Uh, so that's an important distinction, I think, these days when we talk about the U.S. and uh, Russia. Why is it that Russia has only now entered in a stronger relationship with Saudi Arabia? What happened that has allowed them to cooperate more? Does the crown prince have much to do with it? Now, why Russia and uh, uh, Saudi have grown a little bit closer, I think the relation is more transactional. I mean, we are talking about two major global uh, oil uh, producers. Uh, They see eye to eye in places like Egypt uh, and Libya, for example, on the peace process, less so uh, in, in Syria. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be uh, a problem, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in the rapprochement and in them getting uh, closer. We've seen King Salman uh, visit Russia. Uh, the crown prince uh, also met uh, uh, with Putin. So we could see uh, stronger uh, economic uh, ties. I mean, geographically, Russia is uh, closer. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it, it, the economic, uh, growing economic uh, ties could come naturally between uh, these two countries. Now, of course, uh, for the U.S., uh, I mean, Russia is not exactly a rival, uh, but it's one of many competitors uh, when you talk about uh, the Saudi market. Uh, it's, it's also, you know, same concern with, for example, China, uh, for example, France, Germany, you know, in in that same market. What does the crown prince want from Trump? Is he likely to achieve it? And will we see any big announcements on that? I think the visit comes at a very important time for the crown uh, prince himself. Uh, American support for his plan for Vision 2030 for uh, massive economic and social uh, reforms uh, that he's putting uh, in place uh, would be critical uh, for his success. So I think that's uh, the ultimate uh, uh, need for for the Saudi uh, crown prince, and he will be he will be going to Houston to other places, uh, you know, seeking uh, investments. Uh, uh, Foreign Minister Adel Joubert said, "We only want the best," and you know, when you want the best. An investment in education in the health industry, uh, the U.S. Uh, is now at the top of the market, and this would be critical uh, on this uh, visit. What about Qatar? Is there anything that will happen on that front? Qatar uh, dispute. We thought it would be a big deal two months back uh, on this visit. We saw a uh, U.S. delegation go to the region. We heard from. Uh, uh, you know, U.S. President Donald Trump that he would like to host a Camp David summit. But then uh, in the weeks, uh, in the two weeks leading up to the visit, 
those uh, those hopes quickly faded. Uh, Qatar uh, does not seem to to be uh, high on the agenda uh, for the meetings. Instead, it's Iran, it's Yemen, and the peace process. When we talk about uh, foreign policy or regional issues, uh, when we saw uh, the foreign minister Adel Jubeir, he called it an irrelevant issue, a small matter. Uh, he he even uh, did not anticipate a Camp David summit. He said, well, let's see, we're not in a hurry. Uh, so from all the signs we're seeing at the moment, uh, I mean, it could still happen. We could still see a reconciliation uh, summit, but it's the odds are much lower than they were, uh, you know, last fall or even earlier uh, this year. Iran is likely to feature prominently on the agenda. How likely is this to escalate? And what is being done on cooperation between Saudi and the USA to curb their influence? Yes, Iran, uh, you hear it uh, in uh, meetings uh, with uh, U.S. officials, with Congress. Uh, when you talk to Saudi officials, there's a lot lot of talk about Iran. Uh, basically, the, the deadline, the looming deadline for uh, uh, fixing uh, the Iran nuclear deal, a major goal for the administration. Uh, it's pushing uh, its uh, allies in Europe to, to, to fix a few provisions in the deal. If that doesn't happen, uh, there is increasing talk that the U.S. may withdraw uh, from the deal. If the U.S. withdraws, then it's you know, it's uh, we, we, the deal will ultimately uh, collapse because sanctions would be snapped back on Iran, uh, and it would be a very different dynamic than the one we've seen under the the deal. Uh, so, uh, so in a sense, uh, the timing makes Iran a hot issue. Uh, also, uh, both sides are looking for ways to uh, curb uh, Iranian influence, to uh, to push against it in places like uh, uh, Syria and in, in Yemen. Uh, so there is a lot of talk about this. There is a lot of talk about sanctions. That even if the deal uh, doesn't uh, collapse, maybe the administration could move with sanctions. We will see this week also the announcement of a trilateral. Uh, committee uh, focused on mutual threats. Uh, uh, the committee will include Saudi, UAE, and uh, the United States, and uh, the focus primarily will be uh, Iran. That would mean closer coordination in 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 facing uh, uh, what uh, these partners see as a mutual uh, threat. Is there any indication to believe that this could be a precursor to a war with Iran? No, I don't think uh, this is necessarily a precursor to war uh, with Iran. I mean, that's a very different uh, uh, game plan altogether if we're going to talk about military confrontation uh, or war uh, with Iran. I don't think that's in the U.S. calculus. Uh, at the moment, even when you listen to uh, U.S. military generals, uh, such as uh, you know General Votel telling Congress, we are not in the business of confronting Iran in Syria. Uh, so the, the the point now, what they're looking for is 
pressure, is sanctions, uh, is squeezing uh, uh, Iran. Uh, I mean, could this unintentionally uh, lead to to a clash or a military confrontation, for example, in the Strait of uh, Hormuz? Well, who knows? Perhaps. Uh, but uh, for the moment, I think it's a containment uh, strategy. It's uh, exerting more pressure uh, to uh, make Iran uh, change uh, its behavior uh, regionally and on the uh, nuclear uh, uh, program the way the Trump administration sees it. Ahead of his tour, the Crown Prince gave an exclusive interview to CBS's 60 Minutes. In it, he outlined several key themes of what he sees as the pillars of his reign. When host Nora O'Donnell asked if anything would prevent Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman from ruling the country, his answer was two words. Only death. Tassani Kambanas, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, has been studying Arab politics for well over a decade. He joins us to provide insight into Saudi Arabia's larger regional perspective and how the prince's young age factors into that push. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the perceived benefit of a monarchy like this is that uh, you can consolidate power, as Mohammed bin Salman has done, uh, and uh, presumably you can learn from your mistakes and you can do... Uh, you can do dramatic things because you have a real long time horizon. Uh, so that's the underlying logic behind some of, uh, uh, I mean, the economic reform plan, Vision 2030, and some of the strategic positioning of, of uh, Saudi Arabia with, uh, within the Gulf and within the wider Middle East. Uh, so a monarch can can think in these kinds of generational uh, terms, uh, and they can also uh, look at elected politicians and their short uh, time frames with a, with a bit of, uh, of sort of distance, this idea, and, and, and it's not just monarchs, it's also uh, authoritarians and uh, uh, rulers who don't actually see themselves as subject to electoral cycles. So, you know, the leaders of China and Russia, uh, as an example, they can look at democracies and, and figure they can outweigh uh, they can outweigh the short term uh, leaders that they have to deal with and they can negotiate or plan uh, on these long cycles uh, and uh, the flip side of course is is that um, you know even if Mohammed bin Salman can imagine uh, a 30 or 40 or 50 year reign uh, that doesn't in, in actuality, uh, uh, make him any more able to anticipate, uh, you know, the kinds of changes that have been uh, challenges for the kingdom in the last 20 or, or 40 years, you know, from the Iranian revolution to the Arab uprisings and, and the oil shocks. Uh, the, you know, these are things that uh, ultimately being a long-term monarch uh, doesn't actually help uh, or hurt. It, 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 it simply is irrelevant to how you, you know, how you navigate the challenges posed by these situations. Talking about the intergenerational, intergenerational uh, decision making that he can do make. He quoted Quick King Salman, his father, as saying, uh, "If you read the history of a thousand years, you have the experience of a thousand years." Then he goes on to cite uh, 1979 as a pivotal moment in Saudi's history. 
even going so far as mentioning the siege of Mecca along with the Islamic Revolution in Iran as being the main factors changing what he described as a liberal Saudi Arabia then. Is he framing the tension with Iran as one that has been building up for decades? I mean, I, I think that there's a, a, a really unhealthy uh, amount of sectarianism being re-injected uh, into the, the, the dialogue about Iran. Uh, and, uh, you know, Mohammed bin Salman's uh, positioning on this is interesting because he's, he's actually been quite non-sectarian, for example, in his approach to Iraq. So Iraq, an Arab country with a Shia majority government, uh, and and which has, has, has just in the last year experienced a uh, a kind of renewal of of functional ties with Saudi Arabia, and then in a cascade from that with the rest of the Gulf. Uh, so this is a sort of significant non-sectarian uh, positioning. You know, on the other hand, in his uh, descriptions of Iran as his refer- regular referencing of the 1979 revolution, uh, as well as, as some of the coded sectarian language with which he's described uh, Iran uh, and, and the Houthis, uh, is, is, I think, a throwback um, to, to, uh, you know, to a more uh, problematic and, frankly, unhelpful way of, of framing the question. Because if... if uh, if there's a geopolitical contest between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, uh, and, and their various allies in the region, that's something that's resolvable uh, through diplomacy, politics, uh, maybe a certain amount of conflict. If, on the other hand, there is a fundamental religious difference between two irreconcilable visions of Islam, then that is a... Uh, you know, if you if you interpret the problem that way, then it is the source of of a conflict that can either be you know won or managed, but can never be somehow resolved. Uh, and uh, and I think that that there's a little bit of a uh, of a of a friction in in the way he's portrayed this, because at times his approach has been, I think, open uh, to, sh- to shifting away from a sectarian framing towards a, a, a more you know I think correct political framing of, of their, the, the dispute between the two countries. Uh, and at other times, it, it sounds like, you know, we're going back to the, you know, the breathless fears of the 80s and the immediate aftermath of the, uh, of the Iranian revolution. Iran uses religion as a tool for its policies. Uh, it's often a, uh, it's used in its narrative, its political narrative. Saudi Arabia historically used its religious standing as an effective tool in diplomacy. How is this going to change with the crown princess uh, seemingly curbing the power of the religious elite? Well, so that's one of the most interesting developments of the last couple of years. And uh, I think we actually have to see how this plays out. Uh, it, I think it's, it's still too early to say what's happened to that hyper-conservative uh, religious, uh, you know, the Mutawin and the, uh, the religious establishment in the kingdom. Uh, they've, you know, they've been decisively sidelined and in some cases uh, defanged, removed from the decision-making uh, chain. Uh, there's still a powerful force in the kingdom with constituencies, and it will, it'll take, I mean, for example, in the, in the next year or two, we're going to see if, if there is, uh, if that Force has been successfully contained or or defanged. Uh, that will be that'll be a significant and and serious shift in in the position of the of the kingdom. And you know we can't we can't forget that uh, you know that Saudi Arabia has 
has played a, a role throughout the region in promoting uh, different um, different organizations, different schools of, of religious thought that have ended up uh, fueling problems uh, in in nearby countries like Egypt and, and further afield. Uh, so it will be it will be noticed and appreciated uh, very widely if the reverse becomes true, right? If if Saudi Arabia becomes a force not only for uh, moderating those excesses. Uh, uh, by by hardliners in the, in the kingdom itself, but in uh, uh, sort of sp- spreading a more uh, let's say gentle or or tolerant uh, school of, of religion um, around around the region, uh, that hasn't happened yet, right? So so we can't you know we can't assess that as a done a done deal. It is a preference that uh, the the crown prince has has expressed and made clear, and, and if he pulls it off, I think he will reap uh, benefits in, in terms of, of alliances in the Arab and Islamic world and in appreciation from, from countries further afield. Uh, and uh, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, when it comes to the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, even though religion is often invoked, uh, the rivalry itself is rawly uh, geopolitical, right? It, it, it has to do with trade routes. It has to do with um, security control in in places like uh, Yemen and, and Lebanon, uh, Iraq, uh, and elsewhere. And so those and those conflicts, which are really the most dangerous ones uh, right now, those aren't religious conflicts, even, again, if the religious language gets used uh, most often these days by, by Iranian officials, uh, but it's not it's not a religious war. It's a, it's a geostrategic war, uh, and it's going to have to have, uh, if it's resolved or contained, it's going to be resolved and contained by geostrategic means. He's uh, pulled off a lot of decisions when it comes to domestic reforms. Uh, perhaps no one is more a fan of the crown prince than Saudi women. How is this approach to the kingdom's female population going to change? Uh, do you think it'll increase over its reign, his reign? The focus of the last few years uh, has been on a kind of controlled liberalization within uh, within an autocratic framework. So this isn't uh, this isn't a monarchy that's trans- transitioning into an electoral democracy or a parliamentary democracy. It's a monarchy that is shifting from being a uh, a sort of more rigid uh, uh socially controlled place with uh with a certain brand of uh of religious teaching dominant to a more socially liberal uh i mean that's probably not even the right term to use because this is we're talking about a socially conservative traditional uh, uh country so we're talking about a shift towards a more contemporary interpretation of social mores that would put Saudi Arabia more in the same uh, camp as, as, say, the Emirates or Kuwait in how it uh, balances, say, social freedoms uh, uh, against um, religious uh, traditionalism. Uh, None of this is coming alongside uh, political liberalization um, and it's not even clear yet whether it's going to come with economic liberalization, right? So there's a there's a deep desire to modernize uh, the economy and diversify it. Uh, there's not necessarily an interest in liberalizing it, uh, and for example, uh, subjecting the economy to uh, regulation by independent oversight from courts or from from 
non uh, uh, bodies not tied to the monarchy. Um, so, you know, so all that's to say, uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna see we're gonna see openings that are at the discretion of the monarch, not at the uh, you know, at the discretion of some kind of, or, or at the at the impetus of some kind of popular uh, body or governing body. Uh, so, you know, your your specific question was, you know, what might we expect to see with regards to the role of women? And it'll, and, and I think probably the answer is, um, however much Mohammed bin Salman wants to see happen, right? So if he wants, uh, you know, if he wants to see women working equally in the labor market. Um, then we'll probably see that because if, again, if he, if he within a few years has really successfully sidelined, uh, any challenge to his authority from the old hardline religious establishment, then he'll be in a position to put through whatever, you know, whatever he wants within the realm of the possible. Um, and, uh, and so I would, I would expect given what he said that we'll see you know, labor labor force participation, um, and uh, we'll see other kinds of modernization, um, and it will it will sort of stop at uh, I would expect you know around what we see in uh, the other prosperous uh, Gulf countries that I named before, like uh, the Emirates and Kuwait. I'd like to thank Fasani Kambanis and Joyce Karam for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kevin Jeffers, for editing and producing. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Business Extra and Extra Time on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Nasr al Thanks for listening and goodbye.